I'm closeted, I'm gay, people think I'm this, I'm not. Like, there was this cycle in my head that just... And did it go dark for you? Like, were you... It went really dark. Yeah, it went really dark. I just didn't see any way out. I just felt like I, I, you know, I was the opposite of expanding my perspective. I was so here, I couldn't see until... Mark Tewksbury is an athlete and advocate who won Olympic gold in swimming in 1992. And as a Canadian, I remember it so clearly, this iconic athlete cover of Time magazine, biting the gold medal, seven world records. But that was just the start. Mark in 1998 publicly declares his homosexuality and kickstarts a national conversation on what it means to be gay in sport. I was famous for an achievement, but I was afraid of if I shared who I was, that all of that would be gone. And what did you think was at stake? Was it just personal, like I gotta share my story, I don't wanna do that? Or was there more at stake in your eyes? From mindset to mission, this conversation's got it all. Make a plan, like you have to write it down. Uh, act effectively, right? Hold yourself to account. Make sure you're aligning your actions to your goal. And then we have what we call the game changers. This is The Icons, a show where we learn life lessons from those who achieved iconic success in the iconic locations that bring their stories to life. Today, we're in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, in the awe-inspiring Central Library. Welcome to The Icons by Motiversity. So Mark is a Canadian. I mean, I remember those games, 1992, watching this athlete burst onto the scene, gold medal in the backstroke. Can you describe Mark as the athlete? Sure. If you're American, you'd remember it too. <laughs> because I beat the American That's right. So, well, good news. That's right. right. That's right. Mexico. All of Canada is just <laughs> cheering right now. Um, so athletic Mark, I mean, I was a, a hard worker. I was a lot of energy. Um, I, I loved swimming because it kind of gave me an out. It let me see the world and it was um, meritocratic. You know, if you work hard, you can be recognized and rewarded for it. Um, but I just feel like I was part of a great team. I was part of an era of swimming that I saw the generation before me be world record holders and Olympic champions. And so it didn't seem that out of the ordinary that maybe I could do that too one day. Um, when the time actually came, it was pretty scary <laughs> because it's it's... You know, it's something to be the very best in the world at what you do, even if it's just for a day. It's kind of, to go there is almost as scary as failing. And would you go into that fear? Like, I'm just curious, because I do think it would be scary standing out there, you've got to perform at your best on that day. What was that like? What were the emotions? Well, on the day itself, it was very calm and confident. But the lead up to it, I had to get work through a lot of stuff. You know, I think that we often hold ourselves back from being the best we can be with our thinking and we don't even know it. And so, like I said, I had to, um, to, to win the Olympics, I had to drop over a second and beat the world record holder that I'd never beaten in my whole life. So to think that, okay, on the most important day, I'm gonna, all these things are gonna happen. It was really almost fantastical. Like it was hard to be, like the first time I wrote down, I'm gonna swim this time, I laughed out loud because just, it seemed so unrealistic. But luckily I had, a, I had a great swimming coach, Derek, but I also had a technical coach that was a synchronized swimming uh, coach, a woman. And she unlocked so much of my potential, including kind of my negative thinking, the stuff that might've been holding me back. So that by working through that, when I actually got to the day when it counted, um, I was just ready. Interestingly at the Olympics, so in swimming, we have two races, I'm used to that. Now there's even more, there's three. We used to have a heat and a final. So if you make the final in the morning, there's eight hours until the evening. And there's, you can't do anything more physically except rest, but it's all up here. And it could just be like, I realized that's where I used to lose was in my thought patterns and what I would, you know, all the things I didn't do that would come back to haunt me. But that Olympic year, we, I took care of all of those things. So when it counted the most, it, I, it, nothing came. I, I was like, why, somebody has to win. Why not me? And it was like, why not me? Well, why not? I mean, you got to drop a second off your personal best yeah. to win this race. Yeah. So we're talking about high performance already at the highest level. And you say, and I got to take a step up. What was that mindset preparation like? I mean, what was that coach doing with you to, to allow you to work through those negative, that negative self-talk? So I just want to point out too, like to put context of what it means to drop a second in a hundred meter race in swimming. It's kind of like going from an A plus student to a D <laughs> or like as a corporation having to generate 200 million in revenue out of nowhere. Like it's one of these kind of like, what? Right? Like 12 year olds drop a second, 25 year olds at the top of their game don't. It's don't measured in hundreds of seconds and fingernails. And so it was just, I think it was the, um, 
Because it was such a shock, because usually I was just a fingernail behind, when somebody had that big of an improvement, it was the best thing that happened because it it was like, I can't ignore it. I can't, can't just incrementally keep doing what I'm doing. This requires a major transformation in the approach I'm taking. That's where this female coach came in. Um, the first time in history, a synchronized swimming coach, a woman, worked with one of the best star swimmers in the world Whoa. from my country. And so those two things together for the very first time forced us to, instead of going from this kind of patriarchal command and control military style swimming, mm -hmm. very patriarchal mm -hmm. male coaches do as you're told. Suddenly we can't do that. Like the synchronized swimming coach and I have to find a language to work together. We've got to find ways to connect and collaborate. And lo and behold, the environment was perfect for innovation. That's what we did. We just started to do things that no one had ever done before. And that started to build my belief, right? Because I was already swimming four to six hours a day. So my coach would have been like, we're gonna double down. We'll swim eight hours. Yeah, 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 just do more. You just do more. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had to do that and new stuff to find the second that I was looking for. And she provided all of that and every little bit of it from the technical to the mental to the spiritual, because she was the first person I came out to, like the whole package. Wow. Talk about, I mean, transformative moment. And did you, in the prep, were you going dark? Were you away from competitions? Were you just doing this on your own and then, and then came to the Olympics? Or had this been something you'd kind of been working up to? What an excellent question. Um, so the whole Olympic year, typically in a summer season, you have two seasons, a short course winter season and a long course season. We would, we do, we shave. <laughs> we shave all our body hair. Not only does it take your hair off, and I'm fairly hairy, so that's significant, it takes off the first layer of skin. So you're extremely sensitive, like a dolphin skin in the water. You can feel everything so clearly. And so I didn't shave the entire Olympic year. I saved it for the day of the race. I found at the, at the short course season, I was going as fast as I'd ever gone and I was unshaved. So I was like, that gave me confidence, but we never knew. I, I got another I, gear in me. Yeah, there's stuff there. Will it be enough? Is it mm. 1.2 seconds? I don't know, but I can say I'm further than I've ever been ahead. But it was all, it was saving it all for that day, which is a big, you know, kind of risky thing to do. You know, as long as you've been a public figure in Canada, I think Mark Tewksbury, I think high performance. What were some of the high performance lessons, characteristics that you were uncovering during that time and since? You know, the thing I'm most proud of is that Debbie and I, so my coach's name is Debbie Muir. She was one of the world's, world's greatest synchronized swimming coaches. We distilled our experience. We actually, right after the Olympics, it started. We knew that we had done something obviously really special. Like it was, you know, so surprising. So we, we did a little ret retreat. We went to the mountains in Banff. And we made a note of all the stuff we did beyond the technical. Of course, the synchronized swimming stuff was important, but the goal setting, the accountability, the team building, the perseverance, all of those things. And it was what would become the beginning of our business. And almost 16 years later, we would turn that into what's called the great traits. And it's basically 24 fundamental traits of high performance from an individual, team, or cultural perspective. So that's, I'm really proud of that. It's a curriculum. And we've taken hundreds of people through our leadership training program. So those performance traits, I mean, that sounds powerful. And I think about those breakthroughs where, you know, we've been doing something the same old way and that's not how the breakthrough comes. It's, it's something else. Totally. What are some of those performance traits? So the first, like, first two traits, ask yourself questions. I had to really self-reflect and figure out what I was doing. And it was a, one of these fork in the road crises moments. And the next one was expand your perspective. It's incredible how we have selective awareness and we see what we want to see. In front of me was the world's best synchronized swimming coach for years. I trained, you know, either before or after her. I never figured out that she was my secret weapon to winning the Olympics until a total crisis forced that to happen. Some of them are really like, you know, not so exciting, but make a plan. Like you have to write it down. Uh, act effectively, right? Hold yourself to account. Make sure you're aligning your actions to your goal. Go the distance. It's so easy to give up and so many people give up too soon. And then we have what we call the game changers. Be mm. innovative, right? That's that. Be open to try new things. Utilize power of thought to get your winning mindset. And my super trait, generate enthusiasm. 
build a support team and get people excited. And those were kind of the eight achiever traits that helped me lead myself to winning the Olympics. Debbie had, as my coach, had a similar set of eight traits, but more from the, the leader point of view. I was more the achiever, she was more the leader. Interesting. Yeah, it's because they're, they're very connected, but you know, there's a difference between being the best and creating the environment for other people to be the best. It's a subtle difference, but very important. What do you think it takes to be the best? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a big question, but that's well, what I mean, it's really driving a lot of people. I and mean, that, that like, right now it's not working and something's got to change, but that's the drive that's in me. Was there like a moment where that was awoken within you? Was that your lifetime working towards it? Like, what does it take or is it something else? Would you define it a different way? I don't know if the best is as important as your best. Mm. You know, mm. I think the best that's is- powerful. Yeah, I think that's great. I know it's cheesy, but like I did win, of course. It's easy to say, but I genuinely think had I been fifth, second, but I still felt like I really had done what I could do that day. I can live with that. I can live with somebody just being so talented that I will never have that talent. But if I let myself down and didn't do my best, that's really hard to live with. And that happened at my first Olympics. So that's why when I was in this situation and I didn't do anything about it, I saw a year before the Olympics, I needed to change things and I didn't. I did what most humans do. I just went through my routine. I tried to ignore it, just pretended it would be okay. And it wasn't. I, I sucked at the Olympics. I left so disappointed. A year out for the second time when I had that same kind of rock your boat situation, I was like, I have to do something. I have to live with the consequences for the rest of my life. So I was grateful that something kind of shook me up. But like I said, being the best was the goal, of course. But I think let's when you're focusing on your best, it's, it's a little bit more manageable. Mm. And I wonder about, I mean, you talk about the first Olympics, you know, when you won the gold, but I'm curious where did it all start for you? Or where would you say it started for you? Well, funny, I mean, we're talking about my athletic life. So for a long time, I would say it started when I was eight and I watched the Olympics from Montreal. It was 1976. But I think it started like my actual life. When I look back 30 years after winning the Olympics, it started in Barcelona. It was the, the moment that gave me, as a very good athlete, a platform. I had an Olympic gold medal and that's a calling card. It means something anywhere in the world. Um, doesn't doesn't hurt when you're on Time Magazine biting a gold medal. I mean, you got a picture of that moment. I got a picture. It was a big moment. Yeah, big <laughs> moment. It was a big moment. Bigger moment was when I came out as a big old gay guy in 1998, December 15th. And that kind of got a conversation started yes. that continues almost to this day. And, you know, that, that period, I think it was the hardest time in my life when I was the most famous and the most inauthentic in the public forum. Wow. Right? I was famous for an achievement, but I was afraid of if I shared who I was, that all of that would be gone. And so that wrestling with that and and because it was sexuality too, like sharing something so private, so publicly, I was like, oh, I, I'll never do that. Um, but it was the right thing to do. And are you willing to go there? I mean, I'm... Oh, I think, baby, I've been yeah. going there for 30 years. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, 1998. Because it is, I mean... 1993, you did an interview where you were saying, you know, this is happening in sport. There's gay people in sports, but we don't feel comfortable. And so that interview, I'm not... If did I'm, I say that in 1993? Might have been. I don't know. I could have. I feel like it wasn't there an interview where you... It was... It, I think it would have been more like 1990. Oh my God, you're right. I forgot about that. The inside track, of course. Right. You, the, the, I, you, the masking my voice part was, of course, I was so afraid of that. I was like, I, I was sure even when I listened to that hiding my voice, I was like, I still hear me. I, I, someone's going to know it's me. The, the woman that produced that show, Jennifer McGuire, went on to become producer, executive producer of CBC News. No longer there. We are close to this day because that experience was so intense. So yeah. Wow, I forgot I've been speaking about this even longer. But that was behind a yeah. mask and yeah. not wanting to be named. What did you think was at stake? Was it just personal, like, I got to share my story, I don't want to do that? Or was there more at stake in your eyes? There's a lot at stake. I mean, I think it's not just your sexuality or being it. Whenever we want to share something that is maybe something that's vulnerable about ourselves or something we might have seen incorrectly or correctly as a weakness or something that we feel makes us less than, I think we're terrified to share that for 
the repercussions for losing your livelihood, for your friends abandoning you, my situation, my coach, my sponsors, whatever it would be. I mean, I came out to my agent and my agent actually said, like, I'm glad you told me, but don't tell anyone else because you will lose all of your sponsorship. So it wasn't just a hypothetical yeah. idea. There was also, um, like, my father and my family political position and my father's pride and shaming my like at that time it was shameful to be publicly gay in 1992 that in 1992 the year that i won the olympics calgary declared the first ever pride week the mayor then we took that back said it was the biggest mistake he'd ever made and he apologized to the city so how do you think it felt as an Olympic champion, closeted gay guy, when your own city is doing that, and at the same time, I'm leading all the parades, not the pride parade, but all the, yay, we love you. And I'm like, like so that duality was really conflicted and really difficult. So, you know, if it all started at that point, interestingly, I think the hardest part of my career were those early years before I, I had the courage to come out. Wow. And then 1998, you did. 1998 was a real game changer for me. And what yeah. was like, why then? Why you? How and why? Um, a whole bunch of things happened. Um, my father passed away in May, 55 years old. And I think maybe, again, that, you know, that relationship, father-son, complicated. Um, my father was very proud. I don't know if I could have done that if he was still alive. So that was just, in hindsight, something significant on a personal fact that happened. But I've always been, I hate social injustice. That's why I became an activist. My parents are amazing. They, I'm adopted. Two months old, I was taken from the Salvation Army hospice and I was adopted. Um, yeah, I'm a real Dickens story. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my sister was also adopted. And then my mom biologically had a son right after my sister got adopted. And the three of us kids all treated like so much the same, so equal, so fair shared and I just it was just bred into me fairness and so whenever I see an injustice I speak out and it's gotten me in some really dangerous positions before because I just can't keep my mouth shut. In 1998 I did a showcase as a speaker and there was this funny time when um, I wasn't being honest publicly about who I was but the inside was coming out so I got a tattoo which was about freedom and not to let society's chains repress you. Okay. And I dyed my hair platinum blonde, which, I mean, come on, it doesn't mean okay, I know. You're going to be a rock star. Right? <laughs> just, but at this event, this showcase, this corporate guy that had hired me for a tour across the country was a closeted gay guy himself. And when I came out on stage to Dancing Queen with my platinum blonde hair, he was like, this guy's way too gay. And he canceled my six-figure contract. His own inner homophobia came totally projected Whoa. onto me. Whoa. And so that's when I was like, kind of, wow. At the same time, I was trying to live a life. I was trying to go out to gay bars. And so the gay community was saying to me, you're not out. You're not gay enough. How dare you come into our community? So I'm like, I'm too gay and I'm not gay enough. And I was like, I can't take this anymore. And so that was, you know, it was courageous, but it was just like self-survival. Mm -hmm. I just had to reconcile those two two parts of myself and those two voices telling me I was too or not enough. So the, so the day uh, you've got all of this pressure, all directions, and then you've got a day, December 15th, where you, you say this publicly. <laughs> so what, like what's happening inside you that day? So, I mean... <laughs> no publicist. This just happened. Um, Pamela Wallen, big journalist at that time, like our Barbara Walters, um, she does the deep interview show. She was also at that showcase where I got this discrimination. So she got word of something going on. I decided to come out by doing, why not, a one-man show. <laughs> I was a public speaker and I thought, you know, I could lose all of my corporate work. So I'm gonna use the theater stage as a way to express myself. And so I planned, so December 15, 1998 was the debut of Out and About, Mark Tuxer's one-man show. What happened was Pamela Wallen then did an interview that night. 
and the Globe and Mail got word of it, and I did an article that made the front page of the Globe and Mail that morning. That freaked me out because I'd, I'd never been on the front page other than winning the Olympics or something that I was always out of the country for. I'd never been in the country where I was like, news story. And kind of a human interest story because it became fodder for all the radio stations of the country. And it, it, it became something much, much bigger than I would have ever imagined. But um, so the day of, with all this distraction going on, to be honest, I was most nervous about being able to perform an 80-minute, one-man stage show for the first time in my life. So it was a welcome distraction. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. And then- <laughs> No, sorry, that was a long story. That was a long story. No, but I mean, it's, that's the story. So you're saying welcome distraction, but I can imagine there's all sorts of self-talk. And you were talking before about how your coach, you know, years before that had been training you. Like, how do you get out of this negative self-talk? Did you see a parallel there? Like, what did you do? to back in the day to, to manage yourself, talk in your mindset and even 998. Yeah. I mean, I think it's largely, um, awareness, you know, mm. I think so much happens at an unconscious level of our thinking mm. that we're not even aware of. And, and that's why stopping to self-reflect and sort of get in touch with what we're thinking is so important sometimes. But Debbie, my coach, she was really great because she could you know, the way I was talking in workout, and you can do this with coworkers or your friends and family, you know, when somebody's always negative, you can hear that, right? Mm. Like they're just complaining all the time or, so obviously their thought pattern is not in a great place. And I would always say things like, Jeff's so great and how am I ever gonna beat him? And why isn't this stuff working? And we're not getting the results. And she was like, hmm, this doesn't sound like the mindset of somebody that's gonna win the Olympics, having coached Olympic champions. So she kind of thought, I'm gonna make Mark aware of this and just snap him out of it. So one day leaving the pool, she said to me, why can't you beat Jeff Rouse, the world record holder? And she expected me to go, yeah, you're right. Why can't I? But instead I came up with this list of like 10 things within twice. Like I'm weak off the start, I weak off the turn. He's six foot four, I'm shorter, his hands are bigger. I'm Canadian and I've, like, I've never beaten him. All these things and we were like, wow, that's why you can't beat him. So we wrote all those things down, the things we couldn't control. Jeff is 6'4", cross it off. His hands are bigger than you, cross it off. The stuff we could do something about, we came up with an action plan. And as you start to take action towards something, you start to get a different result and it starts to build your confidence. And as we took more actions and I got more confidence, it started to change that negative thinking into, hey, why can't, maybe, maybe I can beat Jeff. So I use that exercise all the time. I call it like, why not, whatever, and get all the objections down. And for the stuff you can't control, let them go. You're just wasting your time. But do something about the ones that you can. And it's incredible how that starts to change your mindset. Wow. Because I mean, what's so fascinating about your story is that 1992, win this gold medal. But you're saying that was the start. Most people, I mean, that's the, that's the pinnacle. I mean, that's the summit. And you were saying that's just the start. And I wonder how that mindset has just served you. What can I control? What can I control? Plan for this. And just taking that fundamental high of high performance traits and just keep applying them all through life. And that's what I love. I feel blessed that I got that experience so early, but also that um, Debbie and I were able to articulate it and teach it. So I not only live it, I'm torn between living it and teaching it, but that's the beauty. And I love to see other people bring it to life. Mm. And, and funny when you see other people live your stuff, they teach it back, mm. right? They interpret it different ways. I'm like, oh, I never thought of that idea from that point of view. It's really fun. And I'm curious. So innovation was one of your traits, but I didn't hear bravery. And I feel like, again, when I think about 1998, there's probably a lot of brave moments in your life. I feel like, like that is freaking Brave. Yeah. So a leader trait that we have is show conviction. Okay. And and I'd say the achiever equivalent is go the distance. That's where you need to be courageous and not give up. But show conviction is where you really believe in something fundamentally to your core. And I just, I, I knew that I, I believed and I had to do what I had to do at that time mm. when I came out. I was willing to lose everything. I think that was really interesting. What I didn't think about was all that I would gain. This feeling of self-peace and harmony and authenticity that people found really attractive. 
you know, different people at first. It wasn't maybe your typical corporate world, but work always came. And then it started to become, you know, be because I was kind of a pioneer talking about this in 1998, yeah. looked incredibly brave in 2008 when suddenly the corporate world started to yeah. talk much more about diversity and equity and inclusion. Yeah. And even to this day, that those conversations coming. And in sport, it's, it's still, still absolutely. Yeah. But there's, there's a couple of generations now. That's what I love. I've got like, kids that are 16 or 18 today saying, thank you, Mark. And I feel like a proud grandparent. It's like, wow, that was so worth doing. It was hard at the time, but it paid dividends. So if you think about that, that young person who, whether they're an athlete or they're just in that spot, uh, I'm, I'm showing one thing to the world and it doesn't feel authentic. Like, what do you ask? What do you, what do you say to that person? I mean, what's your, how do you help somebody in that spot? So, you know, one of the most important leadership traits, I think, is to be open, to be like kind of able to do what's right in any situation, to be agile. To do that, to start to be able to do that, you have to obviously be able to take a step in other people's shoes, have some empathy. So I always, when somebody's struggling, like, first of all, I remember being there. Everyone's got their own time frame, their own journey. I do what I can and try to support, but I'm never judgmental. You know, I think that it's a, such a unique personal thing. I know people still, they're maybe what we would think are superstar athletes, still not comfortable to talk about that part of their lives. And that's fair. You know, they've had to probably take on so many fights in other places. Mm. I took that one on. I'll take that one for the team. But um, yeah, I'll do whatever I can to help people for sure. There's no, there's no one thing to tell someone. Mm. That's, I guess, my mm. answer, right? It's, it's listening. It's figuring out the circumstance and then offering whatever support I can. I've had some instances that were so adorable that it was like, I was Debbie, like when I came out to Debbie, Debbie did this thing and then I've been in that situation. I'm like, oh my God, I'm Debbie now. As this athlete's coming out yeah. to me, like, I can't believe yeah. like this is the cycle of life. Wow. <laughs> and you, I mean, you talk about the fight, like you took on that fight, but you've taken on a few fights, like I big fights. Yeah. Corruption in sports. Yeah. What was like, where does that, I mean, you talked about like, that drive for fairness, that drive for justice, but that's a big one, Mark. What yeah. was that like? I mean, what drove you to say, I'm taking on corruption in sports? I was pretty upset. I was pretty upset because I had a front row seat to see it. So in 1996, I was put forward as a uh, Canadian uh, nomination nominee for the Athletes Commission, the International Olympic Committee's Athletes Commission, which for me at that time was like, oh my God, like the ultimate to serve the IOC, to go to the Olympics, uh, to, you know, represent the athletes with these other iconic athletes. I ended up not getting it. <laughs> Only one Canadian could get it. Two of us were in the top seven. The other person got it. But as fate would have it, the IOC Site Selection Commission, the most important commission of the IOC at that time, the one that travels to all the cities bidding for the Olympics, the athlete rep dropped off. And because I was kind of this alternate for the Athletes Commission, my name was there and plunk, I got on the IOC Site Selection Commission. So this is back before the world looked at, before the Salt Lake City scandal erupted, it was a closed pre-FIFA pre-scale closed door 11 cities bidding from St uh, St uh, uh, some joint uh, Cape Town in, in in South Africa Buenos Aires Rome St Petersburg like it was just meeting Yeltsin and Mandela and you know world leaders and and just seeing how it worked it didn't seem very fair to me and it felt like the decision of who would be in the five was made before we even really went. We spent months of our lives kind of maybe rubber stamping something that had already been in play. And it just struck me how unfair, how unjust it was. The double talk in each city, they would say, Mark as the athlete's rep is so important. He's on every file. Translation, Mark has no file of his own, <laughs> right? Like let's talk straight here. So just seeing all this, so that was okay. I was willing to kind of bite my tongue. That's how it works. Be a good team player. But when the scandal got exposed and when leadership, starting from Juan Antonio Samarach, the president at the time, took no responsibility. In fact, they blamed it on some African IOC members and said it was like so racist. It was a gift-giving culture problem from Africa. 
that was it for me. That's when I, I spoke out. I not only spoke out, I created an organization called Oath, Olympic Advocates Together Honorably. And for the two years that there was a window to try to re, or I, it wasn't even two years, it was about 18 months to reform the IOC, we kept the pressure on. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, they made some good changes. Athlete members, athlete IOC members, got at least to be there for eight years. They're the only one with terms, I will just say. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, they're still accountable to nobody. It's still a closed club. So in that sense, we we weren't successful in transparency at all. But it's worth it, yeah, right? It, like uh, Every step. And, and after me came Becky Scott with the World Anti-Doping Agency. And Haley Wickenheiser is a big advocate against the IOC for mm -hmm. some of the actions they take. And other athletes have found their voice to hold international sport leaders to account. But... It's terrifying. You know, I remember when I started Oath, I was like, we're taking on sport. And I turned around, it's like, there's no one behind me. There's no one with me. Oh my God. And over time, we, we got some, I mean, we got about 120 star athletes and academics and journalists that really were part of Oath. But it was tough slugging because it doesn't do you any favors to speak out. If you're in a judge sport, it, it puts an X on your back. If you speak out against your federation, they have so much power of who gets to go where and what, you could really lose your livelihood. So so people didn't. And you, you've uh, brought up some, some big names, those you've met, those who've been working with you, allies. Who inspires you? You know, it's funny. That I've been inspired by lots of, I mean, inspiration is my business, right? So oh. like from Maya Angelou and the Oprah Winfrey show, like all that stuff, like all of us. But there's only ever been one person that like inspired me to literally change my life. And that's when I was so depressed. I'd won the Olympics, cover of time, line of clothing at a national now, department. That doesn't store. sound like depression. I mean, it doesn't sound like, like you wouldn't project somebody's going to be in a depressed zone in there feeling depressed when they've won that when they've achieved that i mean so i'm curious about that but sorry i was one of the first athletes to speak about that post-olympic depression so even without being gay there's a feeling of okay i've reached my dream uh now what right this really strange feeling then you layer on i'm closeted i'm gay people think i'm this i'm not like there was this cycle in my head that just and did it, it go dark for you? Like, were you? It went really dark. Yeah, it went really dark. I, for sure, for a while in my life, I was suicidal. I can't remember that anymore because it's so far away. I just didn't see any way out. I just felt like I, I, you know, I was the opposite of expanding my perspective. I was so here, I couldn't see until I went to see this premiere of What's Love Got to Do With It with Tina Turner. And I literally sat there and I cried from the opening scene until the closing credit. And when she left Ike for nothing but her name, it, it just became my, I was like, I used to go, I, Tina. That was my mantra. I was like, I, Tina. And I decided to leave everything. At the height of my fame in 1994, bought a one-way ticket to Australia and immigrated with nothing but my name and started over. So that's, so I would say Tina Turner is the, is the ultimate inspiration for me. I just watched her, her documentary that's on one of the, the streaming channels lately. I, and I, I bawled watching it again. Like her story just is so touching. I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed. You were saying in 1998, you said, I was willing to lose everything. I was curious, like, how do you get to that? And it sounds like. I already had. Yeah, or I walked away from it all, just like she did. And she said, I can start over as long as I have my name. Ironically, her name wasn't her original name, just like my name wasn't mine. I was adopted and named Jeffrey at first. And my adopted name is Mark Tewksbury, just like her married name became, and stage name became Tina Turner. So I just felt this incredible, you know, power through her. And in Australia, ironically, she was like the she was the um, for Australian Football League. It was simply the best. It was her song and her performance. Like it was meant to be. I felt like the decision was just so aligned when I got there, and everywhere was Tina Turner. Mm. Simply the best. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it could be a theme song for your life, couldn't it? Yeah. But you know, athletes like um, I, I got a Muhammad Ali Award, a 2019 Humanitarian Award, and I was reminded. For sure, he was in my psyche of an athlete that was an activist. For sure, Billie Jean King, who I've also had the pleasure of meeting the last couple of years. Amazing. My era was more Martina Navratilova and Greg Luganis. 
which were in a way examples of really hard activism. People kind of being outed, not on their own. And maybe that also inspired me to be the one in the next half generation to say, I'm not going to let some, I'm going to decide. I'm going to come out on my terms. It doesn't have to be a tragedy or over a lawsuit or over something. It can just be a, hey, <laughs> I'm gay. And, and it's funny, like to this day, when you see some of these stories, it's like, why do we have to talk about this? All these sport reporters, I, I did it because I knew I had so much goodwill. And I knew it would shock a lot of people. And I was going to test that goodwill of this country. I, they love me. I'm the boy next door. Okay, <laughs> let's see if you're ready. And all the sport reporters were like, Mark, 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 why do we have to talk about this? And I still say to this day, you know, nothing's an issue without, you can't have a non-issue without it being an issue for a moment. You don't get a pass, right? It's not like, oh, it's a non-issue. We don't need to talk about it. You got to do the work then maybe it's a non-issue and we don't have to talk about it. And incredibly, we're still needing to talk about it in sport in 2022 because it's still an issue. Because we still haven't quite gotten there and done that work as we see in safe sport and all of the stuff that's emerging. You talk about that would be not going to be just too much. No, you're not. You're not. I mean, 1992 gold medal, 1998 come out and start a conversation around the world. Take on the actual scene. Yeah. You're 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 working with athletes around the world still to this day. In Canada, we've got an award, the Companion of the Order of Canada. 165 people have it in our country. That's it. At any living, at, at any, any time. Yeah, only 165 living Canadians. And you were just awarded that. Would you yeah. say that's because of your athleticism or your advocacy? 100% my advocacy. 100%. Yeah, I'm actually the only, Dick Pound is in there. He was an IOC member, but I'm the only like Olympic swimming or Olympic athlete that has medals. That's a companion of the Order of Canada. It's a huge honor. Chantel Petitclerc is there as a Paralympic athlete, but I'm the only Olympian, the first Olympian. So I think I got there for sure, not for my athletic accomplishments. I mean, three Olympic medals, I know it. it it's amazing. I'm grateful for it. In my world, like Michael Phelps has 28 medals. Like there's people like that. So I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that, right? Wayne Gretzky was that. Alex Bauman as a swimmer was that. Michael Phelps is that. I'm not that. I'm like the tier below, very, very accomplished. But I think I'm maybe the Michael Phelps of humanitarianism. Mm. <laughs> or, you know, yeah, or, yeah. or let's put a great humanitarian. I, I feel more akin to that person. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, for those who watch this, we've got people who watch all around the world. They're not going to win a gold medal in swimming. I mean, that's just not their their trajectory. But they use their voice to create change. I mean, there'd probably be a lot of people who are saying like, that's me. I don't know where to start. What would you say to that person who wants to have an impact with their voice mm -hmm. authentically? What would you say to that person? You know, it, activism, I think we can think it, it's huge and organizing a march or being part of something, a movement. And it can be that. It can also be speaking up for a, a wrong that you speak, speaking up for somebody, being an ally for somebody that you know maybe can't find their voice, but you can help speak for them. Showing goodwill, you know, treating maybe that person that you see homeless as a human being and taking a minute to look in their eyes and show some empathy. Find something that you care about and give $20 a month. Volunteer if you have no money for something that you care about. All of these things are just three times a week, half an hour, an hour. Go be a coach at Special Olympics. Or like, there's so many things we can do. And I just started doing those little things. And then amazingly, over 35 years, all of those accumulate accumulate into some pretty big accomplishments. But it didn't start that way. It just started from speaking out and, you know, doing little acts of kindness. And so that's how I remind people mm -hmm. about that want to make a difference. I think sometimes people wait to find the thing or the moment and it you just gotta start. I mean it sounds like those those like small steps on the humanitarian side scale, just like they do on the performance side. We were talking about, you know, there was just things we did and we kept doing them and then something happened. At the incremental, end. incremental. So I want to share something from that. You know, there's an idea that Debbie gave me, my coach, that was so fundamental to being a high performer. You can't be a high performer. You can't accomplish, you can't be your best if you're afraid to try new things or do things differently or make a mistake because you have to fail. 
And I came from a very like command and control, win or lose, succeed or fail, all or nothing, black and white, because it was timed. Debbie came from synchronized swimming, very nuanced. Synchronized swimming, you know, eight women start together, not in sync, and over a year, incrementally, they find their way to perfection. It's never gonna start perfect, but they'll get there. And so the very first time I worked out with Debbie, this horrible thing happened. She tied a 10 pound, a 10 pound weight, plunked me into the deep end of the pool. I was just a tall fish that I couldn't do it. And you know, I, I, nothing happened. The lifeguard was there and I undid the band and made it up and gasped for air when, as I was running out. And she was like, okay, <laughs> you're even worse than I thought, but this is a great thing. She said, I thought you had a starting point you didn't have. Mark, there's no failure, only feedback. We only fail if we don't listen to the feedback. So now we got the feedback. Now we're going to revise according to that and take our next step. She called it the AER principle, act, evaluate, revise. She said, as long as we do that this year, we can't, we, we will be fine. And that's how I dropped 1.2 seconds. It was from trying and incremental and adapting and every day being open to the next step. If I'd waited to find the perfect packet, I would have never got there. I would have got to the Olympics, so I'm exactly the same time and wondered why I couldn't figure it out. So it was magical. And I think that that attitude has given me the courage to try things and sure, I'll make a mistake, but I'm, I can live with it. One of our traits is have humility, you know, admit your mistakes and move on. And I think it's healthy. It's healthy to kind of every once in a while misstep and have to reevaluate. Mm. So all this wisdom you've been accumulating for years of doing all sorts of things at a high level, I'm going to ask the question that every 20-year-old is wanting me to ask right now. What would you have told yourself at 20 years old? What's your advice to 20-year-olds? Oh, <laughs> to 20-year-olds? Oh, my God. To myself, funny that you, like, when I think of when I was 20, it was like, maybe all 20-year-olds would go through it. It's a, it's a difficult time. I was kind of becoming a man, growing up, here on mm. a teenager. I had my first Olympics. I felt like it wasn't as how it went is it didn't go as I wanted. I had a silver medal, but I felt like I was kind of the weakest part on the team that got pulled to it. Um, ben Johnson versus Carl Lewis was like the biggest race in the history of the world until the Olympics, 1988 Seoul. Ben Johnson, the Canadian, won, beat Carl Lewis, the American, and then got po tested positive for steroids. And so there was this dark cloud over the Olympics. I remember coming back to Canada and Thankfully, I took a like weekend-long Toastmasters class that somebody wanted me to take through the Alberta Sport Council. And I wasn't that good, honest to God, but I then started to speak to school kids. I spoke to 60,000 kids for free. And I shared the Olympic story and, and I talked myself back into swimming. So I would tell 20-year-old Mark, start talking and share your story because it's going to change your life. I don't think that's what every 20-year-old needs to hear, but for some reason, what was about to happen was exactly what I needed. Mm. So every 20-year-old, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really important if you're thinking about leadership, you know, it starts by leading yourself. And that's probably an age where we're able to take responsibility, where we maybe have a framework of somebody, a coach or a teacher or someone helping us figure out the decisions we should make. But I think around 20 is the time where you take the lead in your own life, decide the goal for yourself, hold yourself accountable, build the support team that you need around you, and start to figure out what it is to lead. Hmm. And now you and I aren't 20 anymore, <laughs> but we still wake up and try to find some way to have an impact on, on the world. What, what, what do you do on a, like this morning, on a morning basis? What are your routines, your rituals? I mean, how do you keep going after having already done it for a long time? What do you do? I'm so grateful for the, for me, post-COVID world is really great because I have much more routine. I used to be a road warrior and I refuse to go back to a life always on the road anymore. So I, I will protect this routine that I have, which is waking up, having one strong Nespresso that's just all you need because it's so delicious and enough caffeine. I last about 15 minutes. We tape the national from the night before and watch in the morning because it's too depressing to watch right before bed, but nothing much has changed by the time you wake up. So yeah, it's a good trick. And then um, I last about 15 minutes till I get up and I typically make a hot breakfast five out of seven days. And my partner loves it. He inspires me to cook and I'll mix it up every day. It might be bacon and eggs and toast. It might be a nice hash. It might be poached eggs and spinach and whatever it is, but I, I just love to cook. It's my creative outlet. 
And then we do like a 40 minute hip routine every day that kind of physically just keeps me grounded. And, and then I cook lunch and dinner like I cook breakfast and fit some work in between. So it's a really very like, I don't know, simple life, but, but beautiful. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm, I think that that's really helpful for a lot of people to hear where they think they need, you know, some special contraption or some special program, but, you know, just making sure there's something that's there for them every day that they can follow and feels like that equals a wonderful life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think like, I definitely need some sort of sense of accomplishment each day. Mm. So by the time breakfast is done, I've got it. Mm. <laughs> like I made breakfast, dishes are done. Woo, tastes good. <laughs> so, so accomplishment, I mean, let's, let's talk there. I mean, I'm, I'm almost nervous to ask this for someone who's been accomplishing for decades. What's coming next for you? So I'm vice president of the Canadian Olympic Committee, which I love. Um, I don't ever want, so I went back into sport. I, I so I think one of another great leadership trait is that embrace contradictions, like never say never. You might, there's no absolutes. Like when I left the IUC, I was like, I never ever went back to sport. I got pulled into the Olympic team side by being the chef de mission in London 2012, which is kind of the head of the Olympic team for Canada. But that was not the leadership, that was just the Olympic team. In Rio in 2016, watching how international sport responded to the Russia doping scandal, which they didn't, and watching the athletes having to name and shame each other on the pool deck, it just was so wrong. So I decided I'm gonna stop being on the sideline. I'm gonna get back at the table. So I ran for the Olympic Committee in 2017. I'm now the vice president. I love it. I, I, it's a nice place for me to make change, to influence the president and the board, which I'll keep doing. I want a great traits leadership program to impact as many people around the world as possible. So I'll be working for sure hard on that. But my life dream now, I want to go to cooking school. No. Or I want to work in a restaurant. I want to do, I mean, I want to get my business to the place where it's strong. And then I want to leave it to other people to lead it and take on the next big challenge, which for me, um, my passion is, is cooking. I don't know how that will translate into working in a restaurant or something, but I just, I'm craving the fundamentals of cooking to be taught just like I got the fundamentals of high performance. I want to know the proper oh, way to chop the potato and the onion. Even though I do it every day, I just want to have the formal training. Wow. That's still, that technique is still technique. Yeah. I still want the technique. Yeah. But that excites me. I'm, I'm kind of sitting a couple years, like 2025. For me, that's when I'm, that, that'll be the marker of if I've succeeded or not, is if I'll be on that track. And I'll look forward to some kind of dinner. dinner oh, I promise. <laughs> I promise. Okay, so, I, 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 this is a big question. Wins a gold medal on Time Magazine, comes out before it's before all the world's ready for it. <laughs> he, was <laughs> not, right? he was out, but you know what I mean. Yeah, kind of early, kind of no. He takes on yeah. sport, goes back into IOC. I mean, there's about five or six unbelievable things that we've just covered in this in this 45 minutes. What do you hope your legacy is? Hmm. I don't really, like, I, I guess when I became Companion of the Order of Canada, that was such a, it's kind of being put in a category with Prime Ministers and Governor Generals and Chief Court, High Court Justices, and it's the Nation Builder category. So I kind of felt like, wow, that that is kind of a legacy thing. What was cool about that was I got to kind of control my own legacy. So my father, when I came, so I, I was made Companion, it was, I was incited for athletic excellence, sport leadership, but for championing diversity, human rights, and inclusion on and off the field of play. And for sharing my story to do that, the bravery of that. So clearly it's the, the gay thing in a great way and the other ethical sport, et cetera. My dad, he, was a, he had a really hard time when I came out to him personally in 1992. And you had that opportunity to tell him? I did, after the Olympics, um, I decided I promised myself I was going to start to live my life, and that had to start by being honest. I told my mom and my dad. My mom was really bad, but she came around. My dad was like, I still love you, but he, he never could reconcile. He couldn't quite come to terms. By the time he died, he was only 55. It was only six years later. I was 30. My middle name is his name, Roger. When you're put into the Companion of the Order of Canada, it's really in the history books, and it's they had me as Mark Roger Tewksbury. And I got to decide, do I keep my dad's name or not? And I thought, you know, 
I'm being included for being inclusive. Why would I exclude my dad? I'm going to show goodwill and the kindness. And I think that he would have come on this journey like my mom has. And, you know, my mom can't wait for my partner and I, Rod, to get married. And she's always asking it. Uh, we're not, by the way, but she wants us to. I'm glad to have the choice. We might. Sorry, Rod. <laughs> um, I think you can hear it. I know, I know. But I just decided, no, I, I want my dad with me, Mark Roger Tewksbury. So incredibly, you know, ironic in a way. And it also made him alive for us through the whole process. Because when somebody's passed away for so long, we don't remember them as much. So it was, it was really, it was my legacy moment to bring my family in with me. What do you think he thinks of you now? I think he'd be pretty proud. I think he'd be very proud. Um, you know, this year I was, I was a part, I represented Canada in Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's funeral. I started the funeral in Westminster Abbey as the honor procession with 50 other people from the realms. I was walking beside Sandra Oh and Gregory Charles, Dane and Kiri Takanawa, the opera star from New Zealand, was two seats away me in the, in the Westminster Abbey. Like, it's like, pinch me, pinch me. So, I don't know. Life keeps surprising me. I, I think like, oh, what possibly could happen next? And all of a sudden, there you are. So I'm just, remember when I said it's so important to be open and to be accessible? I felt like by being, but first of all, being able to be open by coming out and being authentic, so many opportunities just keep presenting themselves to me and it's so fun just to keep seeing where it's going to go so legacy we're not even getting started now i feel like reading your story i knew you were a force of nature i mean this conversation has hit me like that today i really appreciate this mark oh, thank, awesome you. thank you thank you for those who are tuning in for the first time i mean this is the icons these conversations that will change your life with iconic people in iconic locations Thanks for tuning in.